Our Old Testament reading is Isaiah 65, 1 through 9. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it's written before me, I will not keep silent, I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father iniquities together, says the Lord, because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their laps payment for their former deeds. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it. So I will do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. Our New Testament reading is Galatians 3, 23 to 29. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the upcoming, or till the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. And you are all in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Good morning. morning. It's good to see everyone. Please uh, bow with me as we pray for the word. Heavenly Father, we just... uh, we bow before you, we, we come humbly before you now, and we thank you, Lord. We thank you because of who you are, and Lord, as we are, uh, as we gather this morning for worship, we are reminded through the worship service, through the songs, the praise, through even the confession, through the promise of forgiveness, through the entire service, the offering, we are reminded of your goodness of your faithfulness, of your salvation. 
of your grace and your love to us. And Lord, so we pray that as we hear your word now, that we would be attentive, Lord, that our hearts might respond, Lord, to what you have for us this morning, that our minds, Lord, Lord, would not be distracted by other things, but that we would stay focused wholly on you, that this time, Lord, would be devoted to you, God, and glorifying to you, Lord. We pray this in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning, I want to talk about a promise and what promises uh, do and what promises are for, and especially the promise that God made to us as his people. In Korean, promise is yaksok. And so turn to your neighbor and say, yaksok. Yes, that's right. If you come to Grace Church, you get to learn other languages as well because it's part of our vision. A promise can reveal a lot about a person. A promise is not just a spoken word. It's not just something that we say, but a promise is a commitment that we make. It's devotion, right? When we tell somebody that we're going to do something or we promise something, it's, it's, in some terms, it's a contract even. A promise in it is incorporated trust and value and faith and expectations, expectations that you will follow through with what you have said. There's trust in there that if you break what you say, if you break the promise, that your trust will also be lost. In the olden days, your word or your promise was your bond, right? It defined who you were by the way that you either kept your promise or you didn't. And so, promises should be taken very seriously. And in the Bible, they are taken very seriously. In the Bible, we see that God makes promises to his people. He makes a covenant with his people. And in the Bible, we never see at any point God ever going back on his promise. We never see God not fulfilling any of the promises that he makes to his people. All of the promises of God are eternal, shows us that he is faithful, and that we can trust him. And so with this in mind, let's look at today's Old and New Testament passages. As we read the Old Testament passage, we learn of the ongoing argument and the accusations that the Israelites are making against God. Now, this is written through the prophet Isaiah, and this is written, uh, uh, half of it is written before the exile, and then uh, the latter part of Isaiah is supposed to be prophecy or foretelling what will happen in the future. Now, the Israelites, of course, are angry against God, and they make accusations and claims against God. Now, why would they do this? Well, because in the exile, the Israelites were scattered. They were taken by another nation, the pagan nation, a nation that did not know God, a nation that did not fear God. Their nation was destroyed. Their people were taken captive, and they were slaves. And so it's natural for the Israelites to be angry against God, to be bitter against God, and even to question God. It's in this moment, right, in this exile, when the, when the Israelites were not this prosperous and abundant nation that they used to be, 
that they question God's trust, they question God's promise, and they question God's faithfulness to them, to Israel. After all, God promised them that they would be an abundant, a powerful nation, that they would be taken into this land flowing, overflowing with milk and honey, that he would defend them from all of their enemies. And now they find themselves slaves, captives to another nation that does not even know God, that does not fear God. And so they question God. Are you faithful? Are you trustworthy? Are you breaking your promise with us? After all, how could in this event, in this circumstance, how could the Israelites continue to claim God and cling to God when it seems like all is lost? When it seems like the other nation's gods are stronger than the Israelite God? When it seems like God doesn't have everything in control and he's not sovereign? In their perspective, God was nowhere to be found. He was hiding himself. Yet we know that God wasn't hiding himself, that he is trustworthy, and that he is always a God who fulfills his promise. He was not absent from the suffering of his people. And it wasn't out of neglect that he allowed these nations of Assyria and Babylon to take them captive. Nor was it because he wasn't strong enough to oppose these nations that he allowed this to happen. He was with them the entire time. And he even called out to them in their times of need. The reason that they did not know God, the reason why he seemed far away from them, the reason why they did not hear him was not because he was not near to them, but it was because of their own sin and their own rebellion. And so we read in verse 2, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good following their own devices. Such is the case often in our own lives. We feel like God is really distant from us. We feel like we can't feel him, his presence, or we can't feel him working in our lives. We fail to live and walk according to his word. And so he feels distant from us. We don't obey his commands. We don't read the word that he has given us. We don't humble ourselves before him. We don't confess our sins to him. We don't spend time seeking his wisdom. We don't seek his will or his heart through prayer. We, like the Israelites, often walk in a way that is not good, not godly. We walk in a way that follows our own devices. And then we blame God for being distant from us. We get frustrated at God for being silent not answering the prayers the way that we wanted. And all the while, just as he did with Israel, he's spreading his hands towards us. So God, he provides a response to the accusation that he does not care and has neglected his people. And he proves that this is not true. But in fact, the opposite is true. That it is not God who has neglected 
the people, but that it is the people who have neglected God. And so in his commentary, John Oswald, he explains it this way. He says, Israel's problem is not the distance of God or his implacable silence in the face of penitent cries. Indeed, God was answering before anyone was asking, and he was revealing himself before anyone was looking. God already knew the situation that they would be in. God had warned them thousands of years earlier that this would happen, that if they turned away from the Lord, if they did not walk in his ways and did not obey his commands, if they turned to other nations and turned to other idols, he told them that this would happen. He gave them the law for their own preservation, for their prosperity. He spoke to them through prophets. He gave them judges, and he gave them kings, and he continuously warned the Israelite people not to turn away from him. Yet the Israelites, they did so anyway. And their problem was not that God had left them. The problem was that they had left God. And so God provides a response to the accusation that he's far away. He's not far away. He says, I'm here. My hands are, are open towards you. And then another accusation that they make, that he's not sovereign, that all these things are happening to me because God's not in control. He doesn't know what he's doing. He shows that he is sovereign and that he is the only true God. How does he show this? In two ways. He shows this by punishing Israel first. Their demise was not because of the strength and the might of the Assyrians or because the Babylonians were strong. They were overtaken because God had allowed this to happen because he is sovereign. And so he says in verses 6 and 7, Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. Because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills, I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. Even in the punishment of Israel, God was keeping his promise. The promise was that if they loved God, if they obeyed his commands, if they walked in his ways, that he would bless them. And the other side of the promise was that if they did not, that they would be punished. And so God, rightly so, he allows the Israelites to suffer and to be punished for their sins and iniquities. Verses 3 through 5, I just want us to soak this in a little bit because of how heinous Right? these sins that these Israelites were doing against God were. He says, A people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat in, is in their vessels, who say, Keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. I just want to take a moment to, to understand the depth of this depravity. 
that everything that God is accusing the Israelites of doing, they are doing almost blatantly in opposition of what God had commanded them not to do. They were turning to other idols. They were sacrificing, not where they were supposed to sacrifice, but they were sacrificing in gardens, making offerings on bricks, on on things that were desecrated. They were sitting in tombs, practicing necromancy, spending the night in secret places, and acting as if God could not see all of these heinous, these sinful transgressions. They were eating pig's flesh. I mean, just the the depth of just what they were doing against God is, is just astounding. And then in verse 5, he says that the Israelites claim, this is what they say after they do all of these things. Keep to yourself. Do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. They are desecrating themselves. They are defiling themselves. They are making themselves unholy and unclean by doing these things that God has commanded them not to do. And then they go out and they say, don't touch me because you're dirty. You'll make me unclean. I'm holier than you, so keep away from me. In the same way, we, unfortunately, no matter how you look at this, we are exactly the same as these Israelites. All of our religious and our spiritual works that we claim to do for God, yet we are doing them for ourselves or for selfish reasons, or we are claiming God while we go against his commands and we profane his name. We must be careful as Christians when we practice our rituals and when we practice our traditions and our religion not to become like these Israelites if not truly done unto the Lord, even the most pious, righteous deeds may become like polluted garments before the Lord. In other words, when we start to doubt God, doubt his faithfulness, doubt who he is, and when we try to work our way into salvation and work our way into favor with the Lord, then it will always, always, always result in something that is defiling and detestable before the Lord. And so Oswald says, continues in his commentary, God had intended to make his people a holy people, and he still does. But all human attempts to reach that end through our own devices will bring only defilement on us. And part of the defilement is that we do not recognize that we are defiled. We read about the Lord's case against Israel in the book of Micah in chapter 6. And he explains, he, he, he brings this case against Israel. 
And verse 6, he says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams? With ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So God is asking this rhetorically to the Israelite people. What will, what will you sacrifice? What can you give for your redemption? To cleanse yourself. To cleanse yourself of your sin. He says, are you going to give all of these calves, a thousand calves? Are you going to give all this olive oil? Are you going to give all of these things you know, for sacrifice? Are you even going to maybe give your firstborn? And then he says in verse 8, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly, with your God. That is what the Lord desires. Not our pious religious deeds and acts so that we can gain favor from Him, so that we can get into heaven by doing something good. No, He says, Love me. Love me with all your heart. Walk humbly before the Lord. promise was not that if we do a lot of good deeds, if we follow all of the rules and the law to the T, then, then we will be God's people. Then he will bless us. Then we will have eternal salvation. The promise was to have faith in God and to love him with all of our hearts. That was the promise. So, we see that the Israelites were rightly punished before God for their evil deeds. Yet, even in their deserved punishment, we see that God had a plan. Even, even their punishment was for the Israelites. It was so that they could turn back to God. It was so that they would understand and realize their wickedness before God and that they would turn back and cry out to God. Even their punishment was for their own good. See, the Israelites in all of this, they doubted God, they accused God, they thought, oh, he, he is not a promise keeper. He breaks his promise to us. He's not faithful to us. But he was there all along. And not only was he faithful the entire time, he was still faithful even when he punished them. And so, in verses 8 and 9, Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it. So I will do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. I will do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountain. My chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. This, this is the beauty of the gospel. That we, when you, when you read those, those former verses, right, those, those first verses about Israel and what they were doing against God, and, and you, you, you can't help but see yourself, right? I am that person who has done all of these heinous, these 
detestable things before God and against God. Yet this is the promise that he makes to us. He says, yet, what, am I, what is he going to do? He's going to forgive us. And he's going to have mercy on us. And he will show us his grace. This is the beauty of the gospel. He will bring forth offspring from Jacob. And the chosen will possess and live in the new heaven and the new earth. So the Jews will be saved again. And you might think, okay, well, so then just the Jews, because the offspring of Jacob, so then the kingdom of, the kingdom of Israel will be restored, and that's what's going to happen. Well, who are the offspring of Jacob? And in the New Testament, we read the offspring of Abraham. Who are these offspring? Who was the covenant? Who was this promise intended for? Of course, we know that the covenant includes all, both Jew and Gentile, all who would be saved by Jesus Christ. And this is apparent in both of our passages today. The entire book of Isaiah is about the plan of God re- wanting to redeem his people through the suffering servant. Of course, we know that suffering servant is Jesus Christ. And who would Jesus come to save? Just the Jews? No. Not just the Jews, because we read in verse 1 of today's Old Testament passage, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. And I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. At first glance, we might interpret this passage to be talking about these rebellious Jews. However, upon further examination, we can see that God is not speaking about the Jews here in verse 1. He's speaking about the nations. Who are the people that were not called by his name? Even before the nations knew to call upon God, God was calling them and saying, here I am. Here I am. This is the gospel. Even before you or I knew to call out to God for salvation, he was calling us and saying, here I am, here I am. He was revealing himself to us. Paul refers to this in his explanation of salvation in Romans chapter 10, that through Jesus Christ, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He explains that the chosen people are not chosen through their race. The chosen people are not chosen through their ancestry, but rather they are chosen by grace, the grace of God through Jesus Christ, that even the remnant of Israel was chosen by grace through faith. And so also the Gentiles who have been grafted in to the family of God, they are chosen by grace through faith. And furthermore, we read so very clearly in today's New Testament passage, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. See, that's the key, and that's the mystery of the gospel is that the offspring of Jacob, the offspring of Abraham, that those offspring are not tied to genetics. 
They're not tied to DNA or bloodline or ancestry. The offspring of Abraham, those whom God has entered into this covenant promise with, are all who have faith in Jesus Christ. And so, in the 21st century, let us who have faith in Jesus Christ, who have been given this gift of salvation, let us rest assured that God is always faithful. That no matter what our circumstance looks like, He is always, always faithful. We often talk about unity here at Grace Church because we have unity through Jesus Christ. But did you know that we also had a unity before Jesus Christ? And I think uh, Kenny actually he referred to this a little earlier. We were unified in the sin that we were under. We were under sin. We were under the law. We were all rebellious against God. However, God has given us faith. He has given us faith to believe in him, to trust in him, to know him. We are able to have hope and true life. We are able to trust in God and know that he is faithful because of the faith that he has given to us. We trust that because God says who he he says he is who he says he is, that we are also who he says we are. Does that make sense? So in our times of doubt, when things are not going the way we want them in our lives, when we are in these kinds of sins, like we read about in the Old Testament passage about the Israelites, we are able to turn back to God And we are able to ask him for forgiveness because of his son, Jesus Christ. Because he has called us his children. So then we can see clearly that we who have been saved by the grace of God, who have been justified by, through the faith that we have been given, that it is by this faith that God is always with us, even when we distance ourselves from him. That through faith, God is always working in our lives and fighting for us because of his great mercy and because of his glory. Because of this faith, God will never break. He will never break the covenant promise that he has made to us. The promise that because we have been saved by Jesus Christ, we are the children of God. We are heirs to his kingdom And we will inherit the new heaven and the new earth. This faith doesn't come from being Jewish. It doesn't come from coming from a specific bloodline or race. This faith doesn't come, absolutely not, from your religious piety or from following all of the rules. But this faith only comes from God because of his grace and because of the promise he made thousands of years ago to his people. God has kept that promise. And so, let us, who are Abraham's offspring, let us humbly walk with God. Let us follow him. Let us obey his commands. Let us live as he wants us to live, as he desires us to live, not 
so that we could gain his favor, not so that we can enter into heaven with our works, but let us do this because we love him, because we understand the gospel, because we understand the faith that he has given to us, and because our hearts desire now, now that we have been regenerated, our hearts desire is to glorify him in every aspect of our lives. Let us, the offspring of of Abraham, proclaim the greatness of our God, his mercy and grace to all the nations. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to, Lord, come and worship you, Lord, to come and remember your grace and your mercy to us, to remember, Lord, how we once were, were dead in our sin. Lord, we reflect on just, Lord, how, how heinous our crimes, our sins were against you. Yet, in your grace and your mercy, for your glory, because of the promise that you made, you have shown us grace and you have given us faith through your son, Jesus Christ. And you have called us your own, your own children and heirs to your kingdom. And so, Lord, let us live each day giving you thanks, giving you glory for the salvation that you have given to us. We pray this in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen.